Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. I really, uh, I really appreciate your your time, Kev. Um, you you did just mention that you have quite an epic day ahead of you, so I appreciate um, you taking the time to do this podcast. Um, I refer to it as a little ramble. Excellent, like uh, all podcasts should be. Exactly, <laughs> I agree. Uh, free free form media, right? That's right. Yeah. Talking to you off air, mentioning, I guess, kind of the flavor of the show and and. Uh, one of the topics that I that I love engaging with people on, which I think perhaps is not discussed as much, uh, kind of in in Western society, mm. is uh, people's kind of phil- philosophical or spiritual kind of beliefs. And in preparing to do this interview with you, kind of struck by that you've kind of had this thread through your life from kind of um, your early teen years. You you actually went to a school that uh, was kind of grounded in Osho's teachings. That's right, yeah. What was that like for you as a 12, 13-year-old? Well, it was, it was quite an amazing experience because, um, you know, I, I managed to get into this school, which was quite hard to get into in uh, Devon in England called Koh Swan, which is not around anymore. But... Um, but yeah, the school, all the kids were amazing. They were from all over the world. And, and it was, what was really amazing about it is I guess I left Australia as this kind of typical like black stretch tight jean wearing when it, that wasn't cool, um, <laughs> you know, kind of ACDC t-shirt wearing, you know, kind of bogan, I guess. And uh, when I went back, when I went to this school, they had this amazing music festival there once a year. And I think like when I was at school in Australia, I, you know, I knew that I was intelligent, but I, I was never in any of the great classes because I was just not really interested in school. So I just didn't turn up. But then when I was at this school, like we would have like a double period of maths and then I would like run off with a couple of the other guys and we would just jam for like 10 minutes and then come back and do our second period. And it was the first time in my life that I actually really started to excel in my studies. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's something I think about a lot now, but there's, there's definitely that you know, there's a there's a correlation between I think people who are musical in and how well their brains actually work. And obviously, there's been lots of study on studies on these things now. But uh, I think back then I was just absolutely stoked to be running and having a jam in between uh, lessons, and it and it did really good things. And it also opened up my musical, you know, blinkers went off. I, I just I was jamming with kids from all over the world, and obviously, you know, none of them got into rock and roll because techno and dance music was breaking in Europe at that point in time. So it was all about that. And yeah, I came back to Australia after that with this kind of quiet, you know, my eyes were open and I'd seen kind of bigger horizons, and and I'd had a, I, I think I just had a really different connection with music in in this way where it was. I don't know if the spiritual thing was 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 really a thing because I don't know if those those aspects really come into your life until you're a certain age, to tell you the truth. But I think at that point in time, on a complete base level, it was just like I just connected with it, you know, 100%. Welcome, good people of the Coming Up Next work, to another dose of the podcast ramble. Welcome to Coming Up Next with Alastair Marks, which is the very voice that you're hearing right now. And this week, 
I jump on Skype to bring you an absolutely kick-ass dose of creative inspiration. You may know my guest as the lead singer of Eskimo Joe. He has his debut solo EP, Hope Street, primed and ready to hit your iPods on September the 9th. You can catch him at a venue very near to you this September as part of his national tour with tickets available via his website, www.cavtemple.com.au. Coming up next this week, Cav Temple And while you've got that internet browser open, having a look to see where Cav will be playing near your home. You should jump on iTunes, punch in coming up next under podcasts, subscribe, leave a review, and have a look through the back catalogue. There are some amazing and truly inspiring stories in there with some of the world's foremost creative talents, much like my guest this week, the lead singer of Eskimo Joe, Cav Tempele. You you grew up with uh, parents who were... Uh, sannyasa is that am i saying sannyasins yeah sannyasins yeah what 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 exactly does that kind of mean for you growing up well i mean the word sannyasin just means seeker it means it just it's pretty much just a school of mysticism is what it was but it was so outrageous in 80s you know that everyone everyone wore malas and orange they got called the orange people everyone wore kind of orange and maroon and all these kinds of things and and the guru who called himself bhagwan at the time you know would cruise around in rolls royces you know with uh you know these fantastic kind of shiny wool robes on it was wow. just like, it was so like classically kind of kitsch and 80s mm. so that was all kind of happening in fremantle where i live was a real hot spot for the the sannyasin scene and of course you know, it was it was a hundred percent threatening to conservative religions everywhere in the world because it was basically this guy talking about freedom, you know, and freedom in yourself and freedom in your life, and that's a, you know most religions aren't really kind of cool with that. No. In fact, it's generally the opposite. Yeah, it's certainly the opposite of that kind of um, freedom, particularly I suppose uh, a freedom of expression, which is you know as uh, as creatives is something that. I feel as though it's kind of either nurtured into you or you spend a lot of your kind of adult life unshackling and unburdening yourself from uh, constraints that have been put on you and that expression of creative freedom. And I think, I think as a kid growing up through that kind of whole world, and I'm sure people have had lots of experiences with that in other kind of movements that have been around because it was quite a popular thing in the 70s and 80s to be kind of part of a, you know, some kind of you know, commune basically. Yeah. Not so cool anymore. But I think like, you know, a lot of kids who came up from through that, that scene, the, the adults who were there were spending a lot of time and energy because generally what the sannyasin movement was about was about meditation. It was about doing Osho, as he ended up calling himself, became famous because he invented um, some forms of group meditation. Mm. And he, I think he recognized in the Western world that uh, people were like intrinsically lonely and they didn't want to sit on a mountaintop by themselves with one candle and their legs crossed. They wanted to be socializing and uh, and going through the, this kind of this meditation uh, as a group and experiencing it together. So he, he brought that in and it was really popular, you know, in Europe and, and Japan with a lot of these old families who, you know, where a name meant so much, you know. In Australia, we don't really kind of understand that as much, but... In Europe and, and, and a lot of other kind of countries in the world, to be associated with a name is a pretty heavy thing. Mm. So they all changed their names. You know, they all, they all became – and that's where 
my name uh, Sachim Kabian came from. So I was, you know, like I said, I was a kid, so I was just like, yeah, this sounds great, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> but I but I, kept, I I love what I love about it is that the name that I got given when I was like seven years old that I that I kept means uh, the poet Kabian uh, or is is after the this name of this famous Indian poet called Kavi. And Satyam means truth, so so my name ended up meaning truth poet, which is oh, wow. which, became, which became quite kind of prophetic as well. Mm. Were there any teachings that you really connected with while you were at this school that you feel uh, really kind of put you in in good stead, or things that you've carried with you throughout your career now? Yeah. Look, it, it wasn't really a particular like learn this lesson, but what I, what I took away from it was just a openness, and I think like what was kind of beautiful about the school and a lot of the kids that came out of there is that I think there is an um, there's an emotional intelligence that children have, and I think as adults, like you know, we all end up in you know, there's so much mental illness and and people in therapy in the world now, and really like uh, a lot of that comes down to is that they've kind of had that intelligence that 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 kids have when they when they first come into the world they've had that you know beaten or talked out of them they get sold these ideas of what we're meant to be with the white picket fence and all these kinds of things you know that society asks of us that they just they're a bit fucked up and they and then they spend all this money and time trying to get themselves unfucked up and really what I took out of it is that you know it's not too it's just to be a bit a bit of a freaky free spirit, basically. <laughs> and so it and it set me up very much for being a musician because musicians like to earn a living being a musician, you're basically an outlier. You know, you're not really playing the game, you know, that society's playing. And I think to do that over a long period of time, like when you when you're young and you're in your twenties or whatever, that's easy. You don't even have to think about it. But Going into your thirties and when you start to have kids and a mortgage and all these kinds of things, mm. you know you you need to have a little bit of a, I guess a kind of healthy balance and understanding of of who you are and where you lie in the world because you're not the guy with the suit, you know, going to the the office and working working with everybody else. You, you, and you the more you go into being a, a professional full time musician, and and all the other things that you your job ended up diversifying and going into, mm. I guess you need to be a little bit of a freaky free spirit and, and be okay to be an outlier, you know. And I think that's what, that's what it really set me up to be coming out of that school, I think. You mentioned that, you know, you'd, you'd go into your double maths class and then you'd get to go and jam and mm. blow off a little bit of steam. Was that the first, your first kind of experience uh, being a musician? I was playing music before I left Australia and, um, you know, there's that whole thing of the 10,000 hours, you know, that you meant to log in, log up before you, you know, you can just do it. Mm. So I was playing and I was really interested and I knew that like I'd started doing acting when I was younger and I thought I'll, I'll be an actor but I was never really that good at it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but as soon as I started doing music, like there was something that I could tap into like a, like a, like a kind of truth part of my heart that I could tap into that I that I kind of recognized really early and that other people didn't have. And so when I went to when I went to this school and started jamming, I just I guess I got to kind of just go in there and really just start to effortlessly just log up those hours of practice and time because, you know, having an idea and having a having, I guess, talent or whatever you want to call it, is one thing, but you also have to have a skill set, which means that you actually got to do the hard work and mm. and you know, and become good at your craft. So I got to do that. I got to really set myself up doing that. Mm. Do you remember the first time that you performed 
in front of people? I do, but it was my parents before I left Australia for the first time when I was 13. So I don't know if that really counts. But No, no, that counts. Uh, but I was, yeah, I was playing bass and, and singing and I think I was doing like the, the Guns N' Roses version of Knocking on Heaven's Door. Oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. I did that and Baby Please Don't Go. I think that was, that was my, two, my two efforts. Wow. How, how old were you when you were playing those? Uh, 13. Yeah, wow. I'm not even sure I knew uh, who Guns N' Roses were until I was probably at least 15 or 16, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really cool. And so that kind of musicality sort of drove you through your teen years um, and through school until you met Joel Quartermain when yeah. you were sort of in your latter years of high school. Yeah, when I was about 17, I, I was at a party and I was, you know, playing with some other guys and everyone was just doing like heavy metal covers at that point in time which I wasn't really that interested in but these guys were had a little band and they were doing these kind of like you know red hot chili pepper style funk and they just I said oh yeah I've been I've written a bunch of songs and so they came back to my house at the end of the party and I just played them my songs and then the next day I was I was the singer of their band (laughs) (laughs) that's, that's generally how it went it was it was always a pretty short process but I mean, yeah, when I got back from England and stuff is when I really started to get into my songwriting. I, so it wasn't until I was about like, yeah, 15, 16 that it really came out. And I think, you know, you asked before, like, you know, what are the kind of teachings and stuff of, of, that you took out of the school and how, you know, how that developed you as a, as a musician. The, one, of the, one of the really tricky things, and this, is, this totally taps into spirituality, is a lot of people have spiritual experiences on drugs and it's a and it's a really tricky subject because really like is it an authentic experience uh i'm i'm not sure but really you know you can't discount it you know in, in the world of shamanic medicine and all of that kind of jazz but in saying that like a lot of people do and that's and and you know they they're lazy about it in in this day and age they go out and they party on the weekend and they they take drugs or whatever and they have these experiences and 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 popular music and drugs have always gone hand in hand mm. and the people the people who who never kind of tap out of that experience are the people who will die at 27 you know these poor poor people who just can't quite break that cycle but there is a point in most, I would say, 90% of musicians' lives where drugs play an ex- a part in how it develops your mind as a creative. And, uh, and it can be a really tricky one because at a certain point you need to, like the drugs are the dream, basically. It, you, you get to enter into this dream, but then you've got to take that to reality and you've got to turn that into a realized idea, i.e. an album or whatever. And most, most musicians who have like, you know, just smoked some weed in their jam room and then gone and decided to play live and do the same thing have realized that, that smoking weed in the jam room is great, but on stage it works really badly. <laughs> um, so they get into alcohol, you know, and alcohol is a really great uninhibitor. And so that's, you know, lots of bands. Then they have a terrible problem with booze. And, you know, I still see it now when I tour because we get so much alcohol given to us all the time that people drink lots of alcohol in the music industry. And, and, and you know, later in life, Unfortunately, for when people kind of over self-medicate, you know, these these highly creative people, it, it can lead to mental illness and all kinds of bits and pieces. But that's way further down the track. But what happened to me, which was a really, there's two really significant moments in my life that unfortunately were down to drugs. And fortunately or unfortunately, but when I was in India, when I was about 13 and I was really young, I overdosed on acid and I went over to the other side, whatever that is. And... 
uh, I had this intense experience where, you know, it was very visual and there was like snakes and like patterns and all these kinds of things, you know, that I can actually still, if I stare at a random pattern, I can still invoke these <laughs> images. Yeah, wow. <laughs> in my mind, like these, these kind of weird Celtic patterns that I saw on that night. But it changed my brain and something happened and it could have gone really badly, but I, I came back to reality and it was fine and I was like, wow, that was really full on. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> um, so I, when I came back to Australia, I was not only had I had this experience in this school, but I'd had this other like full on drug experience that had changed me and I was different to the other kids. I really mm. was. And I don't know if I ever was the same again, you know, like it was, it changed my brain in a really formative moment, but it also tapped me into this place. Like I got, I was aware of the other place, you know, that that you go to to write songs. And the next moment where something like that happened again was like a couple of years later when I was just starting to get into my songwriting and we'd taken magic mushrooms and uh, it was after like, cause I was doing theater arts at, at high school and it was after a play and we all went back and there was this girl, this beautiful girl, and she was just every party she would get drunk and then cry because she thought she was ugly. And uh, she wasn't ugly. And I, and I just picked up my guitar and I started to sing this song, like making it up on the spot where there was a bunch of us sitting on, on the steps. And I started to make up this song about how this girl Erin was the most beautiful girl in the world and blah, 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 blah. And before I knew it, I, was, I started to cry. And then I looked up and everybody was crying. And, and this song, I don't know how long the song went on for. Could have been hours, could have been minutes, I don't know. But anyway, I kind of, everyone else was like off kind of staring at trees and tripping out and stuff. And I, um, I was there like playing guitar and, and crying. And I, yeah, I woke up the next day and, and that was like a, a really like quite a spiritual turning moment with me where I knew that I had the power to tap into this place. And I don't know if it started with, the drug experience or it was always there or all that did is, you know, quote unquote, opened up you know, a door in my mind. Mm. But, um, but it was there. And, you know, eventually, you know, sometime in my, by the time I got to my twenties, I was kind of not really interested in drugs at all. Um, but I still had this, this place that I could tap into and it definitely started there. And it's a, and it's a tricky subject because if you talk to kids about stuff, like I've got kids now, I don't want them to take drugs, you know, but I can't deny that that experience was, a turning point for me creatively in tapping into a place in, inside of me. Mm. It's like, uh, I guess, what Ramdas uh, talks about. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his teachings or not. No. He, he did a lot of experiments in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s using psychedelics uh, to open up those kind of channels of creativity and what he one of the, his kind of assessments was, like you say, it's, uh, you know, something like acid is a great way to um, find out these kind of spiritual realms or, or, um, or lessons or uh, open up those channels about whether or not you choose to maintain those. You know, what you do with that information once you've got it is up to you. Um, and it's not, you know, the, that's, that's not the place to live. But, no. Um, but that's you know, a place to visit. Uh, and I think things like meditation and... Um, that seems to be the, the the number one thing that, you know, we've kind of realized through the eras of mankind is that, yeah, meditation is kind of this essential p- way that we can tap into that, <clears throat> that place mm. um, without having to take the drug, basically. Yeah. So you, you go and, um, and audition for Joel's band mm. and you're, you're given the gig. What, what was that band? I was a band called Freud's Pillow. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible name. 
you know, it's like like teenagers pretending that they had some kind of idea of philosophy. The idea was that, you know, that Freud did a lot of work with dreams, so his pillow must have been really important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but we were we we were in that era where funk metal was like was not a dirty word, so that mm. was kind of what we we're doing. But I was writing a lot of songs through that period and uh, how Eskimo Joe ended up coming about through that was um, a lot of the songs I was writing weren't really of that vibe, you know, of this kind of funk, you know, heavy thing with, that everyone was doing. Mm-hmm. So I started to write some songs and, and that's when I started to jam with Stu. And we were, we were really big fans of like the Pixies and, and uh, you know, obviously I love the Beatles and, all, mm-hmm. and Bowie and that kind of jazz. But yeah, we were kind of doing this almost folk Pixies kind of gig just the two of us and then yeah we decided to enter the campus band competition because that was a, a big deal at that point in time you know it was it meant you got a plane ticket out of Perth and and we had like one kind of novelty song that we'd written and um and Joel had come on board and he was playing drums even though he was the guitarist in the other band um and we kind of all decided if we wrote three more of these novelty songs we could win you know the whole campus band competition and lo and behold, we did, and so, um, and then we just kind of didn't really stop from there. Mm. It's 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 quite a, an incredible evolution uh, of Eskimo Joe, starting from that kind of really quite humble uh, beginning. You know, you, there's, mm. there's not really any ambition in what you're trying to do. You just can't. You just want to write music and, I guess, get out of Perth. Mm. Uh, uh, but then, you know, you you kind of flash forward to. Um, to 2014 or 2016 and it's a globally recognized band and brand Mm. yeah it's pretty trippy um you know the we're about to next year it'll it'll be 20 years since we started the band basically incredible congratulations thank you yeah um and you know it's and it's a really nice point because we we have been doing this uh two-year cycle for a really long time and this year is is kind of the first time where we've stepped outside of that, and I'm I'm just about to release a solo record this year, which will be really cool. Which I've been working on, which I guess is kind of like the the final you know part of, the, of where I started, which was writing these songs that you know I would demo on my four track and hmm. um, and that end up turning into this Freud's Pillar thing, then end up turning to Eskimo Joe, and now I, I get to kind of finally do just the cab version of it. Which is really cool and really good fun. And Stu's off doing. Uh, he's the managing director of RTRFM in Perth this mm. year. And Joel's been. We, we own a studio called Wastelands, and Joel's been producing bands there full time, which is what he really loves to do. So, um, so it's been really cool to kind of step outside of that. You know, when you're young, everything's very fluid, and you're kind of all part of each other's worlds. And then, you know, as you get older, you become like these kind of planets like orbing each other you know like you you, everyone's eccentricities and you know we're all quite strong personalities they they don't they don't dissipate at all they get they get they get more intense so um so it's been really good we've managed to maintain this thing and haven't kind of destroyed it and managed to step away for it gracefully for a little while so we can kind of jump back into it whenever we feel Mm, it's it's uh incredible that something like that would give you guys all the platform uh, sort of 15, 20 years down the track mm. to really be able to do what you want um, and, and follow what you love and, you know, exist harmoniously as a creative unit still. Mm, absolutely. I mean, the, really the thing, the, 
the main thing with Eskimo Joe, which is why we've had success over a long time, is is the friendship. We we get on really, really well as people and make each other laugh and all of those kinds of things. And really, that that's like the key component to how, why you can still sit in a room with each other. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, life lesson, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just you know, just being kind and generous, and um, mm-hmm. and. I guess knowing when to uh, stand your ground and knowing when to be flexible and compromise. Absolutely, and that's that's what being in a band or you know any kind of partnership is really about, isn't it? Mm. So you win the tickets and you and you exit Perth, mm. um, and you start on this kind of on this journey as Eskimo Joe. Yes. How did that kind of flow for you guys, uh, you know, creating your first record, uh, starting to get that out, starting to see people really connect and respond to what you're putting out into the world? We we won this, like, a package as part of the Canvas Band competition, which was we got to record an EP in, at this place in Sydney. And, um, and we did that, and we were lucky enough that uh, one of the DJs, Jane Gazzo, um, who was on uh, Triple J at the time, picked it up and started playing it, and it got onto high rotation, which was totally unheard of at the time that, you know, that would happen to a Perth band because we were so used to the isolation and all the rest of it. As soon as that happened, we just hit the road and started touring and did these ridiculously long 10-week tours because we had no money and we just had to stay. You know, the plane tickets cost so much, so we just had to stay on the road for as long as possible. At the end of the second 10-week tour, we managed to beg, borrow and steal, you know, uh, enough money to record a second EP and we went to this particular guy called Lindsay Gavina, who had done a bunch of great records at the time, and recorded this EP off our own back, and then did some filming of us doing a, a show because we'd we'd kind of been building up a bit of a following on that really grassroots way of just playing and playing and playing, mm. and um, and we we did some filming of us doing a show, synced it up to the the um the music, and sent it out to a bunch of record companies and. Uh, the the company that came back to us was Modular, who are still around now. Mm. We had a couple of people in the in the pipes, but Pav, who's kind of slightly notorious, uh, like the A and R guy for Modular, he charmed us into um, <laughs> into signing a contract with him, <laughs> which just happened to be the night of this intense Sydney hailstorm where half of Sydney got destroyed. So I don't know if that was a good or a bad omen, but um, but we we started Modular for we did our first record. We, I guess we, they signed us in this thought that we were still going to be this kind of slightly novelty rock and roll band, you know. Mm. Um, but really we had other ambitions. We, we started writing the, the record and like it was, we'd gotten into this rut of writing these kind of really catchy super pop rock songs and, and, and it really just wasn't really, uh, again, you know, what I wanted to do. And I once again started to write all these cab songs. Um, and so we decided to make the Cab songs, the Eskimo Joe songs, and then that's how um, Girl, our first record, came about. And we we really just wanted to make a record where you could put it up next to any of our favourite albums, you know, like whether it be, you know, the Beatles too. I think we were listening to a lot of Supergrass at the time, um, and it would just and it would sound as good, you know. It wouldn't be like, oh, here's an Australian band, and be like, no, this is a band that sounds as good as anybody in the world sonically and everything, but. Us, we, were, we were such ridiculous control freaks that we um, we did the record with this guy called Ed Buller, who this English guy who taught us a lot about songwriting, I should say. But he had all these ideas of what we should do, and we just we we're like, mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> and, then, and then we just took the record home and re-recorded all the things that we uh, he said we weren't allowed to do, and then mixed it ourselves at a little studio in Fremantle. 
and the, and the, and that that record did really well, and I think uh, it was it really set us up for the next couple of records. And then we we just kept getting more ambitious and more um, working on our formula as a bunch of bunch of people. And um, and so by the time we did a song as a city, which was the next one, and we'd been through it, we'd kind of managed to get off modular by that stage because uh, we realised that it wasn't you know really a great label for us, and um, we. Um, ended up on uh, FMR and um, because of Catherine Harrity, who is now a manager, but she was the A&R person and she was the one who kind of spearheaded getting our contract bought up by FMR. And, um, and yeah, we, in the meantime, we'd kind of secretly been demoing and, and recording. We'd actually paid for all the recording ourselves again and we'd recorded this whole album, which was A Song as a City, and then we signed FMR and ended up getting some money to get it mixed and paid, paid us back the money that we'd spent on it and, um, and put it out, and then that was kind of like a next evolution of the band again. So, And then by the time we kind of toured that, and that, that, that did, you know, kind of picked up momentum again, that we, and we got to Black Fingernails Red Wine, I, you know, there, I mean, I'm just jumping right ahead now. I think we, you know, we were really, really ambitious by that stage. So we ended up just going, not even bothering about getting the producer or anyone. We just got a really good engineer and went into a studio and just um, did it all ourselves. Mm. How important is it for you as a as a creative, as an artist, as a musician? Mm. It seems like um, having having a very high standard of creative integrity and not deviating from that is a really important kind of attribute for you it's it's about recognizing that you know form and function is first and foremost you know you've got to you've got to create great art or a great record that you know is is a realized idea it's not just a bunch of jams it's not like the first time you press record and you're just like yeah that sounds wicked let's put it out Mm. it's like again, we grew up listening to the Beatles and all those kinds of things, and there's such a great sophistication in their songwriting, and they're really cool players and all the rest of it. You know, like the reason why the Beatles sound great is they were a great band. You know, you could put a mic in front of them and they sounded good, but they also like there was a sophistication in the chord progressions and the melodies and the themes and everything. You know, they were kind of edgy, but they were they were you know cool at the same time and and pot and accessible. Um, all of these things, but you put it, you know, you put an album like, you know, a Sergeant Peppers or something like that up there, and you're just like, it's not a bunch of dudes just jamming. They've thought about this, they've thought about all of it, and they've put together, you know, and we were really obsessed with the idea of the 20 minutes aside. So it needed to be 12 songs, it needed to be about 40 minutes long, because that's, that's people's attention span, and that's the, that's the art form, that's the classic album. So we just really, you know, without trying to, you know, be too arrogant about it, we just really wanted to make like classic albums, basically. How did you, with the um, progression of your albums, you you mentioned before about a two-year cycle. What, what, Mm. what do you mean by that? So basically, it's you write um, for like, you know, six months, um, and then you record for about three of those months, and then you rehearse. And then you tour for about a year, and then you start it all over again. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And we did, yeah, we did that consistently up until our last album, Wastelands. So, yeah. Wow, it's um, it's it's quite a, I guess, a dogmatic approach to a creative process, which is probably something that really helps you to continue and and as we touched on before, um, continue that harmonious relationship as a band. Well, I think it's. I mean. The the thing that happens with bands, which is bizarre, is that the the better you, the more your roles are defined, um, the better you get as a band. 
But the more your roles start to get defined, then the more you, you back yourself into a corner. Mm. And that's why you have these you know, bands like U2 who have these amazing reinventions and stuff. It's like an essential part of the process, I think, to remain vital and creative and you know you need to be experimenting all the time so it's it's a funny funny process but for me personally and the way that we we have always worked in Eskimo Joe is you know like for years I used to try and convince my friends that I had a real job and they were like yeah whatever you play in a band I'm like yeah but I make a wage out of it I've got a real job um but what we would do is we would work um 12 to 5 five days a week you know whether we were writing a record rehearsing or whatever we'd just be we'd just get back from tour, we'd take the weekend off and then we'd get in on Monday to Friday and, and that's always the way it was. And we'd really hold, hold each other accountable for that. Like no one was allowed to flake out and rock up at three or whatever. We all had to be there at 12 and then, you know, at five, that was when you could flake out and leave if you needed to or whatever. So we, we kind of worked like that and I, I still work like that now. Um, you know, I've, got a, I've still got my jam room out the back of my house, which is where we, you know, recorded, you know, Lots and lots of Eskimo Joe stuff. I recorded the Basement Birds record out there. It's it's just a room, but um, but I go in there every day, and I you know now that I have kids, I'll I'll generally drop them off at school, and I'll work from you know nine to three, and then I go pick them up from school, and then they're my out they're my working hours, and I just work, and then when I leave the jam room, I leave it, and it's not as romantic as you wake up in the middle of the night and have an idea in your head like that still happens, but I just you know. I'll whisper that little idea onto my iPhone and <laughs> record it down. And, you know, but I won't run out to the jam room and just get working. But I really feel, you know, back to what we were talking about before, that whole idea that, you know, people kind of live, live the myth until they're about, you know, 27, 28, and then there's that kind of little evolution that happens in your brain mm. um, and you move on to the next kind of phase in your life. I don't think that is the death of creativity, but a lot of people let it be. And, and the way that you, that you don't let it, be the death of your creativity is you you treat it like a job and you actually get in there and you actually work and it's some some days I go in there and I'm like this is the best thing I've ever done in my life I'm a genius and then some days I, I'm like this is the worst thing I've ever done I'm like I don't even know why I'm bothering you know like <laughs> so you just do that and it's the same with anything that you would do but in the creative world you know it's so much of it relies on you kind of creating these ideas out of nothing um, so, you know, you just have good days and bad days with it, but the essential thing is just to not wait for creativity to come and ideas to come, but just to be in there working all the time. And it's what we did with Eskimo Joe. And I think anybody who's an artist, like there's, there's that, there's that saying like, there's no excuse for a lazy artist because, you know, you have to work so hard, um, to get your ideas over the mark because no one's going to come and there's no Sven Gali is going to come down and, and walk you through the process. You, you just need to get in there and do it all the time. Otherwise nothing's going to happen basically. Mm, it's, it's touching on what you mentioned at the beginning about, you know, getting your 10,000 hours under your belt to achieve that level of mastery. And, and also that, you know, the kind of myth of, an, of the overnight success is also really just a myth behind every overnight success is probably <laughs> yes, years and years and years, if not decades of hard work yeah, and absolutely and yeah. dedication and, and getting up and just doing it, doing the yeah. job. Yeah. And having an almost sick obsession with it, whether so you're doing it, whether anyone would pay you to do it or not. Mm. So as Eskimo Joe's evolving and moving along, and I think it certainly is a great example of what you're talking about about evolving i guess in a way to like what you referenced with you you too 
mm. um, this kind of progression of, of music and each album being quite different to the last one mm-hmm. uh, on some level. And you start to get, uh, you, you've had this great national recognition and all of a sudden you're now having some global recognition as well. What was that kind of like from your point of view? Well, it was a really interesting time. We we did a lot of touring around the States, especially with um, the Black Fingernails Red Wine era. Mm. We really hit America hard and didn't really enjoy the process, to tell you the truth. It was, it's a big like country and you spend a lot of time playing in like towns that are basically just like suburbs with like a massive mall in the middle and you're playing in like the bar in the mall. It's, it's just really depressing, lots of really crappy food. So we, we were doing that and we were working hard and we had to basically make a decision um, uh, where we're going to just uh, pull up stumps and go to America and just it was quite obvious that we just had to get in a bus and go round and round and round that country for about two years until we, it broke. Mm. And, when, and every time we played gigs, it was always great and we always like won new fans. It was just a lot of ground to cover. And at the end of that, that tour, well, actually, this, we set off for a big six-week tour of the States and uh, about two weeks in, I got a call from my girlfriend letting me know that uh, we, were, we were having our first child. Oh, um, wow. And so, and Stu was already, he was kind of having a real um, crisis in himself because he, him and his wife were getting ready to have their kids and that, like, they were basically the same, you know, way along as, as we were and that he was having twins so it felt like to me that the universe was going, no, don't, don't go here and do this. You need to go at home and you need to be a dad and, and that needs to be the next part of this whole process for you. So I did, I, I went, I did the rest of the tour and I went home and um, we had our first son and he's amazing and all the rest of it. And then um, I, we started to do some tours of Europe um, because the record had come out in Germany and was doing quite well. There was a massive market in the UK and, uh, you know, big venues for us to play over there. And so we were just like, hell yeah, let's go there and play some shows. Yeah. <laughs> like, the food's better. you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we went there and had a really good time doing it. And so we, ended, we were like, you know what, let's not spend the money going back to America. That's depressing. Let's, let's just enjoy it. And we could do these three-week runs of, of Europe and come back home and, and kind of be parents as well. So we decided to do that, and um, and then it was it was going quite well, and I was really thinking about relocating over there um, because I knew that we could be sponsored by Warner's over there to go over and do. I was going to move to either Berlin or Amsterdam, but one of those kind of cities where it's quite alternative, but you can get everywhere. And I was like, yeah, and you know, my son can go to an international school, and blah 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 blah. And it's going to be wicked. Um, and we had this crazy run where we went to Switzerland for like a day and played this amazing festival and then got back on a plane and went to Korea to play some festival. And it was just after I got off the plane from Switzerland and, and we basically decided, me and, and my wife at that point in time, that we were going to move to uh, Europe. And I got off the plane uh, and was about to get on another plane to go to Korea and I got a call from my wife and she was uh, saying, oh, by the way, we're pregnant with another baby again. <laughs> so it was kind of like the universe again, I just felt like was going, no, because uh, we could have done it, but it would have been a lot harder with, with two kids and mm. having a second baby. Like it's just, you know, you just go, when you have kids, you just go to ground and you do, you try and do that the best to you, of your abilities and you can't, you can't, you know, not be a part of that. Otherwise you'd be a goon. So 
I was like, okay, looks like we're not moving anywhere. So we went back to Australia and, you know, kept doing what we we're doing. And no, nobody felt bad about the decision, but we all kind of lived much healthier, happy lives because of it and kept creating records. I mean, who knows what would have happened if we had gone to the States and stayed there or what would have happened if we had gone to Europe and stayed there. But we all got to come back here, you know, make more music, have children, you know, create this new life of this balance between being creatives, touring, putting out records, but also taking our kids to school in the morning. Um, and that's what I mean about you, you know, moving into, if we were in our twenties and we were doing that, we would have just gone, yeah, whatever. I don't care. I've got a girlfriend. I'll, br- I'll break up with her. I don't care. Mm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but moving into this, this was me when I was 30, when this all happened. And I just was like, you know what? Like I, I, I actually want to, I want to be a dad and I want to do these things, but I also want to be in a band. And so we we kept making we've we've kept making music and we've kept touring and we've kept going overseas and doing tours and doing all those kinds of bits and pieces, but we haven't compromised us being I don't I don't for use of a better word for being men you know actually um, stepping up in the world and 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 becoming adults through the process. Mm, it's interesting. I, I've uh, you know. Uh, as I'm getting into my 30s, realizing that you kind of at every moment in life, uh, I I like to call them threads. You're presented with threads and you choose Mm -hmm. which threads you want to follow. And it's funny, um, like what you're saying about you you have this this fork in the road where you can choose to kind of tour around Europe and and live, I guess, almost a Peter Pan sort of um, Mm never-never-land sort of life as an artist Mm -hmm. or a creative or the universe has presented you with an opportunity to really ground yourself and evolve and take the next step as, mm. a, as a human being. Um, and it's interesting, you know, all, all we're ever doing is following these kind of, these choices. Absolutely. You know, it's, on one level, it's, uh, it's interesting talking about America and kind mm. of, I suppose, turning down the opportunity to expand further into there because... There's this mentality in uh, in Australia, which is something I talk about with with mm. a, f- a few people um, on the podcast, mm. about you know the ultimate level of success is having success in America. That's kind of the fable of the creative uh, person. Well, yeah, I mean, we we recognise that massively, but it, that's you know obviously it's a cultural kind of hub for all of us because that's where rock and roll comes from. Mm. But it, but in saying that, it's it's a numbers thing as well. That you it is a crown because if you get success in America, you make some money, you make a lot of money, and that's you know really, <laughs> you know, I don't know if anyone would want to admit to it, but really that's like. That's a key thing, you know. Yeah. If you can make money as an artist and and keep living and keep doing what you're doing, then you know that's amazing. Mm. And and America is is always going to be that that crown because of that. And I thought I think we saw that in Europe. We were just like, well, you know what? We can probably get a similar situation by just you know uh, being in Europe. And Germany's massive. It's a huge music buying public. You know, we we were doing great shows over there. It was really building up to something. But yeah, like you said, there's 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 the, these kind of forks in the road and you get to choose every time. And I think, you know, for me personally, like I just, having done it all and having gone, yep, I can, I could actually be there and I could just be working and I could be touring continuously and I could be building up fans and, you know, doing all those things. Or I could uh, just keep making really great music and if a song gets away on a movie or a, a television show or on the radio or whatever, 
and then I have to go somewhere because people are really interested, then I'll go there, you know, but I'm, I don't think I'm going to, I think I'm going to choose, you know, continuing to be a happy, healthy person because I don't think I ever would have forgiven myself if I have had children and not, you know, been a completely present parent. I didn't want, I didn't want what I did for a living to be a burden to my children. That's an, and, and I think that's a really great thing to have an awareness of and to have an understanding of. And I'm sure that uh, your kind of education um, in, your, in, your, in your teens really has really kind of put you in good stead to have that self-awareness. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what's it like when you do step out on stage in front of massive audiences to have that kind of connection with all those sort of people and to know that you're that they're there to be affected by you and you have this ability to affect all of these people? Well, depending on the size of the show, um, it, it changes, you know, like there's a really quite an amazing experience doing a really intimate small show because you can tell stories and, you know, people can yell stuff out from the crowd and you can react to that and that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really amazing experience. When you do these quite, you know, like uh, play places like you know the Forum in Melbourne and stuff like that. Um, that's a really great show because it's the classic, uh, perfect size venue where you can put on a great rock and roll show and you can do the splits in the air and <laughs> and and for those those shows, it's really about getting into character, you know, and and selling something that is not not the guy next door. You're you're creating this. It's still an extension of you, but you've created this kind of character that people are. Uh, you know, are investing in. You know, they want that. They want. Mm. They want something a little they, that they've paid for. That's a little bit more. It's a show. You know, it's something else. But then you have these massive shows where you know we've done these things like uh, like Live Aid and stuff like that. That you know where you're playing to the Sydney Cricket Ground. There's eighty thousand people there, and then it's getting broadcast out to two million people mm. around the world. That's like an out of body experience, and uh, really, you it kind of happens really slowly and really fast. It's quite a, a strange experience, but you know, ridiculous and and crazy. So they're all they're all really different experiences. Um, but I don't. I think it's healthier to be in that place where you're doing those mid sized venues where you're a character because you are still connecting with people and you can kind of drop the character from moment to moment as you see people have these moments. But if you go too much into what they're experiencing, you disappear into the myth. You know, um, if, you, if you overthink it and you come back to the other side and you're too much in character, then it's just a little bit stiff and you're going through the motions. So you need to find this kind of middle ground between those, those two places. And one of the things that you've kind of mentioned about your songwriting throughout this is uh, how, you know, you found that place within yourself um, and perhaps that's where the character comes from as well, but you find mm. this place that you can tap into this creativity and you start writing music that's really kind of based in, you know, quite deep and personal truth. You, you did an entire album that was about, you know, romantic breakups. Um, mm. how, how important is it for you? Is it, is it critical? Is there any other way um, to write from that place of um, kind of truthful, authentic creativity? I think I, I used to do... What I did for a very long time is I, I do this thing which I like to call automatic writing where I, I sit down at a cafe in the morning and I like being out in public for some reason but I'll, I just write and I don't, I don't think about you know, being in the first person or the third person but they become these little kind of almost you know 
like a journal entry, but completely abstract, you know, just kind of going from imagery to this to that. And then often I'll, I'll take those pages home and I'll start to edit that down. And that, that's generally the beginning of where my songs start. So a lot of it are, are based in, in these kind of real, like, you know, almost war diaries. But uh, in saying that, as I've done that for a long time, I don't kind of even have to do that anymore because it's just kind of, you know, I've almost like eaten it all up and digested it and it just kind of kind of flows out of me now. And also, I, I like writing about heartbreak. <laughs> I, just, I think when I tapped into that thing, it was about heartbreak and it was about the vulnerability, you know, that, that, that we are. So I, I think um, now I, I kind of, I'll take a little bit of what's going on in my life, but I'll also do a little bit of time travel now into, into times when there was darkness or whatever. Mm. But in saying that, it's, it's a really funny thing because I'm at this point in my life, I'm in a really happy place and I feel like I've actually evolved into into some other thing you know like I'm I'm not I'm not the the guy in my 20s and early early 30s like anymore I've kind of moved into some other place and so with songwriting like all things I just I always think I've got a handle on it and then something will change and I'm like oh wow okay that's what you need to do and for me it's always a mystery that I'm just kind of fumbling my way through but uh but but I always discover these new, just when I'm about to kind of go, well, I, I don't think, I, I just don't know if I've got anything else to give. Then this a whole new place reveals itself and I'm like, wow, there's all this cool stuff in there. So I don't think the well ever runs dry. I think you just, you know, you just keep, keep, you know, searching through the dark. And as you evolve personally, I think your songwriting evolves and, and those, those places of truth that you, you, you tap into evolve as well. Mm. What, what, what is it or was it about heartbreak that you that you liked tapping into i think it, i think i felt it at a really early age i think um part of the reason why my um my i had such a strong reaction to actually looking after my kids and and coming home and being a dad is that my dad wasn't really around at all and he he you know like he was still in my life but he wasn't he wasn't a present dad and my parents went together. And I, and I think my first real memory of that was, uh, was being heartbroken by it, by being absolutely heartbroken and just really feeling that, that feeling. And so when I started to songwrite and uh, I just felt that there was this kind of, I don't know if a well of sadness is the right thing to say, <laughs> but, um, but I just, I, there was a real, I could tap into that melancholy like really easily and 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 I found the thing that I like the most because I'm not like I'm not an unhappy person like I generally I'm you know I'm always I've got a bit of the Pollyanna about me that I'll always see the brighter side of things mm. so my favorite place was was that the bittersweet you know where it's like where it's sad but you're kind of whimsically kind of happy about it and I think that yeah, that all that all came from just experiencing or having a my first kind of real knowledge of of heartbreak at, a, at an early age. And and I guess it's real and it's uh, it's it's deep and it's truthful. Um, yeah, it is. It's raw, kind of uh, raw feeling and vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I suppose to kind of briefly touch on what you said about your dad, that's probably created quite uh, a high value for you in maintaining a family unit and being a present father like you said before and absolutely being able to provide and support you you did mention at the beginning of the interview that that kind of um, the creatives or the artists uh, 
kind of journey for a lot of people ends in their late 20s because they don't understand or they can't quite figure out how one incorporates it into a more adult lifestyle but you know you you've done it uh, with with quite a high level of success what do you what do you think has been the key to that in music people really love to believe the myth and and as we become more sophisticated and you know people are podcasting and tweeting and doing all these things you know the mystery kind of disappears a little bit um, but music and art really is the great mystery you know it's like it's it's not the answer it's the question it's people nailing the question basically and so people can disappear into that myth so severely but I do believe that you know if you personally embody that if you become like a living version of that then it will eat you up and destroy you like your life choices that you make should be based on you just being a good dude being a great person being the best person you can possibly be but then next to that you know you you really focus on your art as as like like a great painter does you know like they don't they don't become a great painter until they're in their 50s or 60s you know because they 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 sit down and they do it every day as a discipline and and then through that you know they've obviously got a magic that comes out in them but it's a discipline you know and it's and it's their meditation and they do it all all the time and you know there's lots of painters who've made lots of tragic silly stupid life decisions because they they probably are still living the myth and and let's face it Artists are always going to be a little bit freaky like that. <laughs> that's just that's just how it is. But, a little bit hippie I, and free spirited. Yeah, but I I think the reason why I've been able to continue doing it is is I've been able to draw strength and light, you know, from around me because um, my decisions in my life have have you know have been, you know, yes, you have to have a healthy level of narcissism to do this. But I've also like when you have children, you know, you have to put these people first. They're they're the most important people in in your world, and then you kind of come a close second. <laughs> um, so so I've I've done all those things based on just being like being a good person in in the world, and I think that that has allowed me to you know, and then to, and then continue the discipline of just walking in every day and doing it, and 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 I guess you know that can be easily justified if you are selling lots of records and doing massive tours and making lots of money and providing for people but i think the the, the point where it becomes quite tricky is if you um, make that life choice to be an artist and you're going to have highs and lows financially of how that all goes so you know you it becomes quite it becomes quite a thing to going okay I don't have any money coming in, but I've got to go to that jam room and I've got to keep writing and I've got to keep working on this and I've got to see that end goal and I've just got to keep setting myself deadlines and working to that, that deadline and getting that done. Because when, cause when you do, like, and you do and you work, money does come back in. But, but the way that, you know, what, how we work as artists is you work in projects and you need to just keep, you know, putting out projects basically. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Cav. Uh, some of these insights have just been absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and I really, as I said, appreciate your time. Um, before you go and jump on a boat for a, uh, for a photo <laughs> shoot, I do have one, uh, one final question that I ask everyone. And my final question is, what makes you silly? Um, what makes me silly? Um, I reserve an, a little slice of pie in my mind to be innocent. Mm. 
That may That's... be my favorite answer to that question. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> what does what does that kind of uh, what does that give you? Uh, it lets me just tap into that childlike innocence that we all should preserve in ourselves. You know, I don't think we sh- I don't think it should be the largest part of the pie, but I think it's an essential part of the pie that all of those things like, that we've talked about today that we we kind of you know think about as an adult or whatever you know they're all great but you need to be able to just run and play and be silly and laugh and giggle and do all those silly things and the way to do that is it just reserve that little piece of pie on the pie chart in your mind of of innocence mm. and i think in in this day and age we're very uh, sort of quick to you know to want that quick kind of gratification or um or to possess things or to um to have and to whatever but we don't really take time to just kind of step back and appreciate and really just enjoy and be in that kind of innocence and that irreverence of life and love and and creativity absolutely absolutely um there's a great uh, osho quote to kind of round it all out love is not about possession love is about appreciation absolutely Mm. beautiful thank you so much kev thanks alistair champion (laughs) 